0: another edition of Clear the Dance Floor here on Radio Free Brooklyn. It's me, your host, Colby Smith, locking it down here until the 5 o'clock hour, at which point Legendary Air will pick up the good times and keep the ball rolling. But until then, it's Clear the Dance Floor, baby. 718-673-8201 is our number. That's 718-673-8201. That's the call-in number. That's the one we use. That's the one we live by. The one we die by. And we're flying solo here today, folks. Uh, no guests in the studio, just me. The, the the tunes, the good times, the stories, the chatting, the chit-chat. So there's lots of room for you to call in today with anything at 718-673-8201. Lots of room for you to go long. You know, sometimes I hear from people like, Oh, Colb, you know, you and the guests were having such a good time. I didn't want to interrupt the flow. No worries today, my friend. Today, it's just you and me. It's just you and me. On that lonesome highway, 718-673-8201. But what do you want to talk about? anything you like. Well, our official topic today is summertime sadness uh, after the Lana Del Rey song. Lana Del Rey, once again, coming through with an amazing new album this year. That's, of course, uh, 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 did you know there's a tunnel under Ocean Boulevard? It's been in that thing like crazy ever since it came out back in March, I want to say. March, April, somewhere in there. I think it was March. But uh, uh, an unstoppable force, Lana Del Rey. And uh, one that will, if we're lucky, will be (laughs) with us for a long time. What did we hear to kick off the show? We had a nice little trio of tunes there. Uh, We started things off with uh, our our perennial favorite here, EJ. With uh, 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 what was a hit at the time. I I don't want to go on with you like that. From 1987's Red Strikes Back album. Build is the big comeback album at the time. Not really sure if that... Was the case. It's kind of been forgotten about now. I mean, that was a, that was a charted hit. Was continued to be a hallmark uh, uh, of the live shows for many years after that. Uh, last played live in the year 2000 for the one-night-only concerts at Madison Square Garden. And uh, uh, really hoped that on this farewell tour these last couple of years, we, we'd, uh, we'd see him dig it out. Because uh, that's just such a, one, that's a really fun song. One that really lets him cut loose on the keys. Really lets him cut loose on the keys, but alas, uh, uh, the Farewell Yellow Brick Road tour wrapped up this year, and uh, we didn't see it. Didn't see it. Missed opportunity, Elton. That's my note on that, but that's how we kick off the show. We went straight into Barracuda by John Cale. Perhaps his most well-known solo cut outside of the Velvet Underground material. And I believe it was last night, maybe it was Friday, I think it was last night, that John Cale played the uh, the final Celebrate Brooklyn concert of the summer. Uh, one of the free shows at the Prospect Park Bandshell. We have an 80-year-old John Cale just up there, just going at it. Set list looks amazing. Jealous to all those who were there. Uh, could not make it myself, but seemed like an amazing time. John Kale still doing it, still doing it, still out there, paving the way for the rest of us. We heard Barracuda. And then we went right into Prince of Peace. By Leon Russell, uh, 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 one of my favorites, one of my favorite songs of his. Uh, Leon Russell, I'm just about all the way through the the new biography of Leon Russell that came out this year by Bill Janowitz. Uh, it's called the, uh, Leon Russell, the Master of Space and Time's journey through, you know, rock and roll journey, whatever, I forget. Point is, it's a big, thick volume. It's like 600 so pages. Uh, uh really, really goes in. On, an, on a, an amazing career, and we're gonna we're gonna, we're in the process of trying to get Bill on the show, so maybe we'll go into this later on. But uh, there, there's just there's so much in that book about the L.A. session scene in the 1960s. You know, Leon Russell is a guy who played on all these Beach Boys records, all these Phil Spector albums, all these different people, and in, that that could have been a book on its own. In fact, I mean, that's a huge chunk of the beginning. Is just uh, all these. Stories about him in the studio with all these different people, and how he was able to really elevate these recordings, and what his skills as an arranger are, were whatever. And then it goes into his solo career all through the seventies of just being this, you know, these first couple years of the seventies, this first string of albums, and that was from the first one, by the way, Prince of Pieces on this first solo album as a solo artist. Into Leon Russell and the Shelter People, into Carney, Leon Live, all this stuff. And then, you know, it's, it's starting to fall apart. This is a, a, a point I'm at in the book. This is where things are starting to kind of, kind of go through. So hopefully in the next couple weeks, you know, into September, we'll have Bill on and we can kind of all talk about uh, this stuff together. But if you're into, if you're into, into music of the, of the post-war era, you know, of that classic kind of 60s, 70s thing, then this, this is a book for you. That's uh, the Leon Russell biography by Bill Janovitz. We heard Prince of Peace going into the show. Uh, lots of stuff going on that, uh, around the station. A couple of things I want to tell you about uh, Radio Free Brooklyn. The climb continues, folks. Uh, our mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and helps us uh, continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax-deductible. So please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. And if you're looking for ways to get, you know, just to kind of keep track of what we are up to here, this is a, I've said it before, I'll say it again, this is a very, very vibrant community that brings together lots of different parts of, you know, the kind of New York City arts scene, whatever that may mean, brings us all together. And a good way to stay on top of that is to sign up for our newsletter at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash newsletter. It comes out monthly, so we're not going to overwhelm you. And it includes latest news about new programming and upcoming RFB events. And I just also say, if people have been listening from the beginning of the show today, you'll know that we are actually looking for shows. We are courting new IP. New IP. Who knows what it could be turned into? You pitch a show here, and in this IP-hungry media market we've got, why, you could be sitting on the next Spider-Man. Your idea for a radio show could be the next spider-man so if you're looking to do that you can hit us up on our website at radiofreebrooklyn.org click propose a show and uh, get involved get involved in this uh, this uh, uh, community I'm uh, uh, I'm raving about so uh, you know if you're out there and you're, you're thinking that there are things that uh, you know maybe you would want to want to pitch you know uh, there's all kinds of shows we got a lot going on already but there's uh, there's always holes you know in, in what we're doing here show, you know, maybe you want to do a cooking show, maybe you want to be like a little uh little Anthony Bourdain out there, maybe you're watching The Bear and you're thinking like, oh, there's there's something in this, there's something in this that I'm responding to, you know, talking about cooking, talking about ingredients, talking about sourcing ingredients, the Baldor truck rolling up with tomatoes. Book, and you're just like yelling at the guy on the phone, just like, Why would you bother me during the lunchtime rush, you worm? So I was yelling at people on the phone in that book. Tell you what, we're gonna hit a kitchen. The bear, I think, might be on to something if that's if it's just like screaming at people. It seems if like what I've read of Anthony Bourdain, that seems to be accurate. I wouldn't say it's something that I've been my waking hours doing is just like listening to these people yell at each other and scream about how they suck and they can't cook and like all this. It's like oh no the the pot roast it's it's boiling his brother is dead or something he's like sad because his brother is dead I mean, look, anybody would be sad for that, but I—I I, I don't know. I just—I I feel like I need more. I need more from the bear. The so notes for the bear. I need a little more. All these shows are like a half hour, but they're serious. Like Girls was like this. It's like, oh, you're just kind of scratching the surface on this thing. I wish you would really like go long on this. You know what I mean? Like kind of dive in. most recent season is just like a random, I mean, the casting, I gotta say, I love Oliver Platt, Oliver Platt and anything. There's this uh, uh, Oliver Platt movie, The Ice Harvest, from 2005, with him and John Cusack, that's like a really awesome, uh, uh, just like a good no-frills crime story. Billy Bob is in it also, Billy Bob Thornton. places, the Museum of Modern Art, to see, of all things, The Spy Who Loved Me. The 1977 Roger Moore James Bond adventure that is largely credited with breathing some much-needed life into a franchise that had stagnated commercially ever since Sean Connery strapped on the Walther PBK for almost the final time in 1971 with Diamonds forever. It was 2012, and the museum spent the month of October screening every entry in the Bond series as a way to both anticipate the release of Skyfall in November, and celebrate the 50th anniversary of our hero's first appearance on the big screen. True to MoMA's form, the lion's share of the screenings took place at odd hours of the afternoon, Thunderball at 1pm, For Your Eyes Only at 3.30, but they reserved a select few for those primetime slots at 7 and 8. The Spy Who Loved Me was among them. Until that point, I hadn't considered Spy among my favorites at all, and I didn't think Roger Moore was really all that good in it. For my money, his best Bond flick is 1983's Octopussy, an unfortunate name for one of the series' most sure-handed and suspenseful entries, in which the central romance is between Moore and the relatively age-appropriate Maude Adams. But Spy had spectacle on its side. The iconic ski jump, the Carly Simon title song, the pyramid sequence, the climactic shootout aboard Stromberg's underwater base, they all ought to make for a good time at the movies, I thought. Plus. I was eager to spend the night out of my apartment, my first New York roommates decidedly not working out. When I arrived at MoMA that night, I was delighted to learn the movie would play on a 35 millimeter film print in the museum's largest screening room, the Roy and Neuta Titus Theater One, a 400 seater with a big old screen. I was even more delighted to find that the theater was packed I got there very close to showtime and had to hold my backpack above my head like a foot foot soldier keeping his rifle dry while fording a river just to squeeze into a center row in the back. The lights went down, and from the moment Moore walked across the screen in Bond's trademark gun barrel sequence, it was all over. Every lame one-liner landed, the swell of only half-ironic laughter enveloping the room. It's my main memory of that night, how loud it was the crowd reacting as if trying to bring their favorite band back to the stage for an encore. I've never seen an audience more locked into a movie in my life. Nights like this, the communal experience of movie image-based art, are much this very much the subject of Goodbye, Dragon Inn, the film critic Nick Pinkerton's new book about the 2003 film of the same name by Taiwanese director Tsai Ming Lang. The movie Goodbye, Dragon Inn follows a handful of characters who attend a screening of Dragon Inn, a Taiwanese sword fighting classic from 1967, at an old single screen cinema in Taipei on its last night of business. These characters include a projectionist who wears a metal brace on her leg, a Japanese tourist unsuccessfully cruising for sex, and Jun Shi and Mo Ten, two of the actors from the original Dragon Inn who appear as themselves. In Pinkerton's deft hands, this movie becomes the primary case for why the physical movie theater provides a life experience that streaming at home could never replicate. Namely, when you're at home, you are, by definition, not partaking in the life of the street, something in which the cinema is inexorably bound up. Pinkerton himself is a tried and true journeyman of the film criticism trade. His writing appeared in the first ever issue of Reverse Shot and has been published in places like Film Comment, Art Forum, Book Forum, Sight and Sound, and many others since then. He's something of a beloved figure on, if you'll pardon me, film Twitter. His lengthy posts somehow conveying all the nuance and the good humor we're told has disappeared from the site entirely. His Substack employee picks is free to read, but subscribers still flock to the paid subscriptions, throwing in their $5 a month just because they dig his stuff. It's hard to blame them. His March entry, Collect Them All, was a tremendously thoughtful and companionable read on, among other things, the value of physical media and the phenomenon of collecting. And the zine project he promised to paid subscribers has blossomed into a kind of literary magazine all its own. He's cultivated a sense of DIY fun around his readership, making it seem like a fun club to be a part of. What I find particularly magnetic about Pinkerton's work, and I'm including his online presence under the work umbrella, is that it feels as though he's the most in touch with what we might call the punk soul of moviegoing. There is in the popular consciousness a certain snootiness to cinephilia, a cerebral self-congratulation for, say, making it through a French art film that is antithetical to Pinkerton's Pinkerton's more visceral appreciation of the form. In his writing, he manages to bring even the highest-minded works of... Like, say, a mostly dialogueless, unstreamable Taiwanese feature from a filmmaker who now largely operates in the art gallery and rarely, in, rarely in the cinema anymore. Back down to earth, resting them away from the confines of the academy and delivering them back to the people. He neatly articulates this endeavor in Goodbye, Dragon Inn, during one of the many passages in which he finds himself in conversation with an essay by Kent Jones, formerly the top programmer for film at Lincoln Center. In 2016, Jones wrote about the marginalization of cinema for film comment, in which he argued, "...the conditions of the art form as we've known it, and come to love it, are dying." But there will be no death of cinema. Rather, it is in the process of being culturally marginalized, which means that it is assuming a proud place alongside poetry, dance, and concert music. Pinkerton's retort, quote, I confess I find the prospect more depressing than liberating, as one who as a young man gravitated towards cinema rather than poetry, dance, or concert music because it seemed both remote from official school culture and accessible to regular punters in a way those things did not. Or at least, that's how I've come to explain it to myself after the fact, end quote. The quote brings to mind Pauline Kael's criticism of David Edelstein, now the chief film critic for New York Magazine, as reported in in James Walcott's 2011 memoir, Lucking Out, quote, all that boring intelligence, end quote. This refreshing rejection of official school culture animates Pinkerton's work overall, and it qualifies him exceptionally to articulate the value of the movie house and its connection to the, gloriously, to the glorious truances of urban life, a feat he accomplishes so expertly in Goodbye, Dragon Inn that I can't help but include the lengthiest block quote of my career. For Psy, there is a tangible connection between the old style cinema and interpersonal communication. The single screen cinema of the sort Sai grew up inside is a physical manifestation and memento of a more unified communal pop culture or monoculture that by the turn of the century had effectively ceased to exist. It offered a single option, in many cases servicing a contiguous neighborhood in the manner of a local grocer or hairdresser or noodle shop. And so people who lived together would enter the cinema to have the same dream together the quality of that dream or lack thereof arbitrarily determined by the negotiations between distributor and exhibitor. The multiplex, a phenomenon in many cases concomitant to increasing suburban sprawl, was one step toward the fragmentation of the audience and a separation of the cinema from the life of the street. It would be carried still further by home video's market saturation as VCRs made every parlor into a theater. The the social space of the cinema lost ground to the private space of television, and with this went a powerful incubator of fantasy. Barthes compares the, the alluring darkness of the cinema with its electric potential, its anonymity, its eroticism, to the domestic familiarity of TV, writing that television doomed us to the family, whose household instrument it has become, what the hearth used to be, flanked by its communal kettle, end quote. In other words, when the movie houses close down, where will the Japanese tourist in Goodbye Dragon Inn go to cruise? Where will the projectionist crippled by an unknown injury watch the Wuxia warriors of Taiwan pass, break free from gravity and take to the air? Where will a couple of old actors go to find a visual and oral document of their youth? Hell, where will we in New York go on a summer day for free air conditioning? These, for both Pinkerton and Psy, are not incidental questions. They are the thing itself. More to the point, when a major studio like Warner Brothers announces that its entire 2021 theatrical slate will debut simultaneously on HBO Max, or Netflix CEO Reed Hastings calls movie theaters the enemy who are strangling the industry, they forget that moviegoing isn't just about the movie, it's also about the going. Psy's film and Pickerton's book work hand in hand to neither eulogize nor rescue the act of communal assembly around a film, and all the erotic tension and voyeuristic thrill such an act entails. Rather, they serve to recognize it for the cultural, social, and ultimately personal value it provides. Each is up to the job. harvest it's like it was like billy bob thornton has been like like <sighs> disposed of i guess what was like what what would what, 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 what it be basically john cusack and oliver platt like sail off in the sunset together Except it's nighttime and it's like they're driving an ice like, like you gotta contend with all these all these people who are like oh die hard's my favorite christmas movie it's like, it's, it's these tired Twitter jokes. I tell you what, I read that book, uh, uh, Emma Klein book, The Guest. This new, this brand new Emma Klein, but Emma Klein who wrote The Girls. Now we got The Girls. Now we got The Guest. Okay. Three, there's like three good lines in the thing, and one of them is like the narrator. So like the premise of the book is that uh, uh, you got this woman. This young woman who is, like, dating this older man in uh, in the Hamptons uh, out here in New York. She's staying in his house for the weekend, but they get in this fight, and then she has to kind of, like, go, like, you know, survive on her wits alone. She has, like, her phone keeps dying and all this. So she has to, like, ingratiate herself into these other groups of people. And so basically... uh, She, like, loops up with this, like, group of young friends... You know, who like are all out. It's like a this huge group that all like rented a beach house for the weekend. And she like notices that all of their jokes are like from videos, <laughs> or from like YouTube or Twitter or like the office or something. She doesn't say the office, of course, because that's like too specific. Like, that's what she said, and like all this stuff. But she does like call out that like they're just laughing at stuff that they're not like, that they're just repeating punchlines they've heard from elsewhere. And that has this kind of like weird social currency that's like, well, oh, like we all know the same thing. It's like not even. But you see, like you see this stuff out there, you know, like you see you, you see it. as, like people just make, making these references, these videos, just like God, like you truly can't make a joke on your own, <laughs> or you're like so desperate for a laugh.
1: future's not ours to see case at us we be is a modern life, make it, and gives you high quality daily nutrition, your performance.
0: him a full 50 years. But this summer, Bruce Springsteen finally gave his critics the bullseye of their dreams. On July 20th, 2022, a few weeks after Springsteen announced the first U.S. dates for his 2023 tour, eager fans crossed their fingers and logged into Ticketmaster, only to receive a no-holds-barred walloping at the hands of ticket prices that had soared as high as $5,000. And these aren't scalpers' prices, mind you. These are straight from the source. The costs are a function of the site's new dynamic pricing algorithm that sets prices according to, quote, market demand. This strategy and its quite rightful outrage prompted coverage in trade publications and the mainstream press alike, and were no doubt accompanied by legions of smug I told you so texts from from fans' friends who never bought Springsteen's hype, who found his salt-of-the-earth persona tough to swallow even before he sold his catalog to Sony for 500 million bucks. But let's talk a little about market demand, that shadowy force that sent the uncapped ticket prices into the decent enough used car range. There is, to put it mildly, sizable interest in Springsteen's tours. His previous outing, 2016's The River Tour, was the highest grossing of that year, edging out Coldplay, Adele, Paul McCartney, and Beyoncé. It was during that tour that he performed the longest U.S. show of his career, crossing the four-hour mark in Philadelphia on September 8, 2016, when he was 66 years old. Four hours evidently wasn't long enough for Philly fans. When tickets to this year's show at Wells Fargo Arena went on sale on July 26, 2022, the promoter called it the largest demand for tickets in Philadelphia music history. End quote. Perhaps part of the reason there is so much desire for Springsteen to tour, beyond every mom's wish to shake that thing to Dancing in the Dark one more time, is that his past six years off the road have allowed him to indulge in the worst facets of his artistic personality. The sanctimony that has long been present in rock critics' writing about Springsteen has now begun to creep into the work itself. Both of his most recent albums, 2019's Western Stars and 2020's Letter to You, have been accompanied by feature-length films that consist solely of performances of the album's new songs, intercut with Bruce's character characteristically lengthy narrations about their origins and themes, stripping viewers of their own interpretive power and framing each song as a deeply felt missive from one of rock's most sensitive souls." Western stars, which enjoyed a very limited theatrical release, at least represented a stylistic departure for Springsteen. Its orchestral arrangements draw on the country epics of Glen Campbell and Harry Nilsson, and the result is the most interesting musical experiment of his late period. The Letter to You movie, by contrast, unfolds in pretentious black and white, with E Street band members cutting each new track in the studio at Springsteen's home in Colts Neck, New Jersey. The interstitials here are drone footage of rural Jersey, with Springsteen's iconic ruminations on death, loss, grief, and community droning overhead. It's a 90 minute yawn. Springsteen has never been an especially light-hearted guy. But part of what makes his albums and especially his live shows so impactful is his ability to acknowledge life's joys as well as its hardships. His demeanor is at times crushingly earnest, but in his best moments, he knows when to balance out his sincerity with a well-timed joke. There's a wink to the way he launches into a James Brown-style rap mid-song, and some of his most well-known tunes, including Glory Days, Rosalita, and Darlington County, are unabashedly comic constructions. The self-imposed heaviness that accompanies every new release nowadays clashes with the mischievous up-to-something grin he wore on the cover of Born to Run, the expression that drew so many of us in in the first place. We've also seen Springsteen in recent years become a kind of unofficial avatar for the centrist wing of the Democratic Party, the one that Barack Obama and Joe Biden have come to personify. He co-authored a book and hosted, I kid you not, a podcast with the former and lent his post-9-11 anthem, The Rising, to the latter for use during his speech at the 2020 Democratic Convention. The middle has been a hard place to get to lately, between red and blue, between our freedom and our fear, he opined during what sounded like a stump speech for a losing Democratic midterm candidate, but it was actually a 2021 Jeep commercial. The very soil we stand on is common ground. Talk about rock and roll. Springsteen has long been politically active. Volunteers collected donations for local food banks, have been staples of his concert since the 1980s, and his best political writing remains as relevant as ever. 700 tons of metal a day, and sir, you tell me the world's changed, he sings on Youngstown, a standout track from 1995's The Ghost of Tom Joad, Once I Made You Rich Enough, Rich Enough to Forget My Name. I can practically hear Barbara Ehrenreich speeding to the record store to shell out for a copy. The Springsteen that wrote that feels miles away from the one about to head out on the road. And for those of us who've stuck with him, the past few years have been a rough ride. Sure, we've enjoyed a steady stream of retrospective box sets and archival live releases, but we've also watched his joie de vivre give way to a ponderous austerity, exemplified most clearly in the stone-faced expression which, from which he plods through much of the Netflix special, Springsteen on Broadway. And on top of that, we're expected to sit idly by and watch his ticket prices climb into the thousands, bringing a whole new definition of the term nosebleed seats. I, for one, call foul meet the new boss they who famously same sang same as the old boss same my eye Since shucking off his mortal coil in 2007, he and his reputation have been in near constant state of denigration, all the way up to the recent news that a forthcoming collection of his political writings had run into trouble at Random House due to a young staffer's objections to the title of his essay, The White Negro. Naturally, this prompted yet another round in the endless debate over what to do with the work of authors whose careers are even the least bit objectionable. But as these arguments do, this one fizzled out before any decisive chord was struck. The only clear thread to emerge was that Mailer, often a far too easy target, had once again been trotted out for a fresh rake over the coals. The possible upside in Mailer not being around to defend himself is that the criticisms being leveled now are the same ones he heard when he was alive. His boorish behavior in the public sphere, his at times reprehensible actions in his private life, his willingness to slag off his contemporaries in print, his bumbling forays, however good-natured, into the sexual and racial discourse of the day. This is all old news, and he can no longer add new sins to his critics' items' lists of, of of his existing ones. But of course, rather than remember him as a difficult person capable of great works who resist easy categorization, we must again belabor his imperfections and try to square them with his genius, and I dutifully will take up arms. Among Mailer's most vocal defenders during his lifetime was, perhaps surprisingly, Joan Didion whose saintly glow is about as far away from Mailer as one can get, at least in terms of the public reception. Um, Upon the publication of The Executioner's Song, Mailer's 1979 lengthy account of the murderer Gary Gilmore, who demanded his death sentence be carried out and not commuted, Didion wrote a rave review in the New York Times, praising it for its style, its ambition, and another surprise, its treatment of its female characters. But what Didion really connects to in The Executioner's Song is its setting, Utah, the American West, the, quote, immense blue of a Strong sky. She writes, The authentic Western voice, the voice heard in the Executioner's Song, is one heard often in life but only rarely in literature. The reason being that to truly know the West is to lack all will to write it down. The very subject of the Executioner's Song is that vast emptiness at the center of the Western experience, a nihilism antithetical not only to literature, but to most other forms of human endeavor. A dread so close to zero that human voices fade out, trail off like skywriting. In a world in which every road runs into the desert or the interstate or the Rocky Mountains, people develop a pretty precarious sense of their place in the larger scheme, end quote. Mailer grew up in Brooklyn, attended Harvard, made his name as a public public figure in New York where he ran unsuccessfully for mayor in 1968 and spent the last decades of his life at a modest beach house in Provincetown, Massachusetts. He was an East Coaster through and through, but Didion was the first and perhaps the only of his critics to point out that some of Mailer's best writing, his clearest and most salient demonstrations of his understanding of American life, comes when he's writing about the West. Take the Deer Park, his third novel, released in 1955, about a young Air Force veteran who comes to the fictional California town of Desert Door, an obvious stand-in for Palm Springs. It's remembered as Mailer's Hollywood novel, and while there is plenty of unsparing movie business satire in there, he has just as much to say about the California myth. Quote, a long time ago, Desert Door was called Desert Door by the prospectors who put up their shanties at the edge of its oasis and went into the mountains above to look for gold. But there is nothing left of those men. When the site of Desert Door was chosen, none of the old shacks remained. No, everything is in the present tense. It was a town built out of no other obvious motive than commercial profit, and no sign of commerce was allowed to appear." One wonders if Didion, who mentions the Deer Park more than once in her review of the Executioner's Song, revisited passages like these during her work on 2003's Where I Was From, a collection of essays containing her own exploration into the myths that made the West. Didion's book is far-reaching and deeply felt as she punctures California's own perceptions, Californians' own perceptions of their state with forgotten histories and inconvenient truths. Among her subjects is the incompatibility of Californians' sense of connection to the land and the long and documented record of the federal government draining wetlands and manipulating ecosystems to make them more hospitable for potential settlers. She's especially good on the federal subsidies for farmland, which itself became a kind of cheap commodity in the mid-19th century. Quote, Carrie McWilliams in California, The Great Exception, remarked on the almost total absence of conventional rural life in California. Which would have been, were in a country, the world's seventh largest agricultural producer. Quote, their relationship to the land is as casual as that of the migratory workers they employ. To live as farmers would have been, for the acquisitors of these operations, a bewilderingly alien concept, since their holdings were about something else altogether. They were temporary chips in the greater game of capital formation. End quote. In other words, what Mailer hit on, and Didion later expanded upon, was that California's proudest asset, its natural beauty, is in fact yet another cog in the capitalist machine to sell something, an an engine by which to turn a profit. Both books contain the writer's deft observations of how systems of power, including business and government, manipulate the personal, and they each situate these conflicts in a specifically western context. Reading the books side by side, the similarities they contain and the tensions they illuminate are striking. The West to them is about both beauty and desperation, oasis and desert, glamour and sleaze, freedom and imprisonment, all true at once and all acting on each other in a continuous tug of war. Threads like these are why, to my eyes, we can't fully write Mailer off as a dinosaur with nothing to say. His best writing could, like all other great works, help us better understand ourselves, our neighbors, and the world we're making. No wonder Joan was such a fan. Ice Harvest was directed by Harold Ramis, of all people. Comedy director Harold Ramis is directing the Ice Harvest? I mean, it's like... You with comedy people where, like, they they, they decide, oh, I got to get serious, I got to do my, like, my 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 crime movie, you know? Uh, but, you know, I, I guess it just came late for Harold Ramis. I, I wonder, I don't really know how it, like... Came. Book and he was a fan of the book, and like it was just like a passion project for him, you know. Mm-hmm. offered a role to Bill Murray, uh, who did not return his calls. Bill Murray famously, like, does not have any representation, you just have to, like, have, uh, you know, like a number that you call, you call like his person. He only takes calls from from Wes Anderson at this point, right? It's like, oh, we need a sad old guy in a movie. Call Bill Murray. That really, really funny, really funny guy. Anyway, uh, I can't believe we just spent the entire show, uh, uh, really flew by talking about the ice harvest. Man, it's crazy how how much uh, this like, little-known movie from 2005 can... Really be a springboard uh, uh, to talk about all kinds of uh, other stuff. I mean, like we, we really got into some, I, I mean, I, I feel like I, I divulged some pretty intense wisdom over the past hour, you know, talking about life, talking about love, talking about faith, talking about friends, you know, talking about government, talking about the role we can all play, you know, talking about history, you know, s- s- touching on STEM a little bit. Did, did, did anyone else, was anyone else surprised at how much we got to talk about STEM this past hour? I don't know. I mean, I heard there was some, like, weird stuff with the stream going on. So I I don't know if you guys heard all that. But uh, that was definitely in there. But we do got to start wrapping up now. You know, probably enough time for one more call. If it's a quick one, 718-673-8201 is our number. That's 718-673-8201. 718-673-8201. Anyway, like I said, I heard the stream. Uh, You know, I hope uh, thanks to everybody who called in. Really covered a lot of ground today, folks. That was really impressive. I mean, you know, sometimes when I don't have a guest, I get a little nervous that, like, you know, like, oh, no one's going to call. Or if they do call, they're not going to be good. And I'm just going to be on my own in here, you know, basically doing advertisements for myself. But... You know, you guys really you you pulled through today, so uh, really impressive. And that just goes back to that kind of thing we were talking about earlier, you know, in the show at the very beginning about just like the the community that this place has, and and you know all the different interests that are all kind of you know it's like Greenwich Village in the '60s. It's like boom in one corner you've got a crazy guy reading poetry, and then boom in this other corner you've got this stand up comedian, this uh, this artist, uh, Lenny Bruce, really uh, really taking things to a new level. And then oh, there's there's Bob Dylan in the other corner, uh, you know, singing these. Folk songs and it's like everything's just kind of mixing together, and that's kind of what uh, that's kind of what Radio Free Brooklyn can be. Uh, and I think today we really we really got to that. So uh, again, hope you guys were able to stick around for that. That's about it for Clear the Dance Floor this week. Uh, my name's Colby Smith. I've been your host. Uh, no show next week. Uh, Going to be doing a little bit of traveling. You know, like I said, it's been a busy summer, and I'm glad that you guys have all kind of hung, hung in there with us as we as we keep the show going with uh, with uh, a fairly inconsistent schedule. But, you know, it's not going to stay like this. You know, after this, uh, we miss the show next week, then it's just going to be straight, weekly, Clear the Dance Floor episodes from here to the holidays. So, uh, uh, you know, we can all look forward to that. I've, I've got some asks out for some big guests. I've got, you know, I've got a lot of stuff that we're working on for the fall that I'm really excited about. So appreciate you guys hanging in there. And there's a lot more to come. So once again, this has been Clear the Dance Floor on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Colby Smith. Keep that dial tuned to Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, uh, our friends at Legendary Air will be in here shortly. Uh, in the meantime, here is Dusty Springfield. Bye.